Welcome to the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Upriser focuses on technology conversations centered in the future of work and how new technologies are applied and how work evolves. The Upriser podcast is brought to you by Topcoder. Welcome, one and all, to another episode, another edition of the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. And, you know, on Upriser, we really like to focus on the the people that are driving open innovation, the people that are driving future of work practices and crowdsourcing, and really looking at workforce models in a brand new way, and not just talking about it, right? Talk is cheap, as they say, but applying it and getting big, challenging things done. And I always want to get people to put their thinking caps on and, you know, get outside the box of looking at crowd as something that's going to bring you a burrito at 3 a.m. when you hit a button on your phone. I like burritos too, and I want I want burritos at 3 a.m. sometimes, and I'm grateful that kind of crowd is there. But we're talking bigger things, more complex things. We're talking, you know, like talent problem solving from across the globe to just drive the needle on, on, on world-class problems. And with that, I've got Jared Metter. She is the Director of Open Innovation, Office of Products and Programs for Challenge.gov and CitizenScience.gov. To frame it up lightly, she's a rock star in the open innovation space. She's really been a trailblazer and super excited to bring her to the Upriser podcast today. Jara, what's going on? How are you doing today? Uh, Clinton, I'm doing great. Thanks for giving um, me and my program this opportunity to have a conversation with you today on this beautiful New England Friday. That's it. So, uh, you know, without without giving away too much personal information, we're both in, in the Northeast, we, we were discovering earlier, and it's uh, it's kind of a little bit of a gray, well, it's New England and it's, and it's getting to be late October, so what the heck do you expect, right? We got 50 states and multiple regions, and we chose we chose the Northeast, so uh, so that's on us. But, but you know what, the Northeast has a lot, a lot of great things to it as well. Um, so speaking of some really great things and fun things, I always like to do some sleuthing and, and, and what that typically means, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly Columbo, is to look back on people's LinkedIn pages, do a little bit of research and find, find some cool nooks and crannies we could talk about, especially so folks could get to know you a bit better before we get into the topic. So they kind of have an idea of what, you know, how'd you get to now? Like what, what forms, what what is Jara all, all about? So when I looked back, I was, I was like, oh, wow, she went to Texas State. I know you spent a lot of time down in Texas. And when I looked on a map, I was like, oh, Texas State. I didn't know exactly where it was. And it looked like someone like put a pin between Austin and San Antonio, like dead smack in the middle of there. So the first hard-hitting question is, what's, what, what city do you like better? Where, when you were at Texas State, did you gravitate to go to Austin? Were you more of a San Antonio type person? What's, uh, what's your favorite jam? Gosh, well, that is a very deep question. Didn't expect (laughs) you to go so deep into Texas lore this early on in the conversation. But yes, I spent many years in Austin um, at University of Texas, in between Austin and San Antonio at Texas State for a couple of degrees. And then San Antonio, I lived in for for many years while I was in the military. And so I, I kind of traveled that road in between Austin and San Antonio through life for about about a decade and a half. And I have to tell you, hands down, San Antonio is my favorite. And the reason it's my favorite is because Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex. Just, just kills it there. It's just, my just, life. 
just better, better than whatever Austin could offer. Because Austin is, I would, I would equivalent, uh, equi- is equivalent a word? I'm not sure it is, but I would equate it more with, uh, you know, barbecue, Texas barbecue, right? So that's kind of what it's more known for. And so, so San Antonio puts it to shame when it comes to the Tex-Mex. You know what? If I were to go on record and make that claim, I cannot, I, I, it's a dangerous area to, to go into <laughs> um, because of friends and family and wanting to maintain my relationships going sure. forward in life. So I'm just going to say my personal preference. <laughs> I like it. I like San Antonio it. for Tex-Mex. Yes. Very, very cool. Now that's, it's, it's good to, uh, good to know because, you know, I, you know, I think Austin continuously gets the all the kind of a lot of the shine. And, uh, you know, I think folks who just don't know Texas very well probably wouldn't realize San Antonio is just like a little bit of a hop, skip and a jump away from Austin. We're not talking about too far of a, too far of a get. Um, and I think it's got a, a, a different and, and more unique vibe. So I didn't know how you'd answer, but it's, it's kind of cool to, to hear that you, you waited towards San Antonio and the fact that it was, uh, it was anchored in, in food, which, you know, I'm, I'm never going to, never going to be mad at you about that, Jara. Um, and then, you know, when I looked back at your, you know, as you got going to like, right, again, you're director of open innovation uh, for challenge.gov. And we'll talk all about that. However, your path to open innovation and using the crowd and, you know, doing, doing challenges for, for, uh, for government agencies, it wasn't exactly an A to B to C. You know, when I look back, you're like, hey, you, you had a doctorate in philosophy and molecular uh, carcinogenesis, I think I've got, I've got my, my partial Latin right there. And so two separate PhDs, I believe. So how does somebody go from being, you know, I believe you're really, uh, you know, uh, well, you are a scientist and a researcher at heart. And how does that, how do you make the leap from being a hardcore scientist researcher and then getting into the world of open innovation for, to, to, to help out all these government agencies? What's the, what's the story there? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question. So uh, one PhD only. Um, I, you know, yeah, my my journey as a scientist it was really incredible. You know, you nailed the synopsis, and yes, it was my career so far has been full of adventure. My research career took me to you know five different continents. It allowed me to gain a deep understanding of cancer risks of human exposure to sunlight in places like Antarctica under the ozone hole and also exposure to ionizing radiation um, in, in astronauts, you know, during, during space flight and travel. And, you know, much of my work, it really involved understanding environmental exposures and DNA damage and field work. One of the most exciting um, aspects of my research was really going beyond humans and looking at bacteria and how bacteria are able to live in some of the world's most extreme environments and and through their DNA modifications. But, you know, the bridge from all of that, the science and and use of scientific method to um, open innovation was, it's actually, it's fairly intuitive when you look at it in a rear view mirror kind of way, because as scientists, we're always asking questions. And I've been interested in some time and how I might infuse open innovation methodology, you know, crowdsourcing, open data collaboration into my research. And I had an opportunity to perform a fellowship in in government via the AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. And I was fortunate that my first project was to design and develop a technology, um, a, a technology demonstration competition 
for the US Agency for International Development. And so I went from science really wanting to broaden the way that, that we used um, collaborations to drive discovery. And I identified open innovation in government as a place where I might come to learn. And then fortunately I landed in a prize shop and really the rest is history. Yep, a super a super cool background and, and just the the fact that you you know kind of globe trotting and and all these these amazing scientific studies and research you're doing and then you know I, I get that you landed in a prize shop as as you you know kind of framed it there and um, and then you had this chance to kind of shape this shape this challenge and the competition but how did you become you know what was there an aha when you became aware that this was a technique that was being that was being used I understand the kind of near field implementation of taking scientific study um, and the, the and the scientific approach and being like, oh, I could apply what I've learned into the shaping of challenges because it's really about problem definition and really, really spending a lot of time on getting the problem right and getting the data right in a lot of cases too, which obviously lends itself to how you'd, how you'd go do research. Um, but were there, were there things you were exposed to that you're like, wow, that's really just interesting from a, an OI perspective and I didn't realize people you know, had the ability to, to do open innovation? Was there, was it a book? Was it a class? Was it a, a coffee conversation? Do you remember? Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting. That's a great question. I, I actually did have an aha moment when I was at a, um, I was at a, a conference for radiation research and they, they did something that was a really, it was a session that was focused on on innovation in science. And some of the speakers that were on the panel were talking about how they recruit volunteers hmm. and how they're partnering with um, entities that in, in the public, people, stakeholders in the, in the issue that they're trying to address to be a participant in the scientific process and being a participant in data collection and reporting and then also being able to uh, really experience the findings and have a, a role in making impact in that issue. And that in that session, it really was kind of an overview of modern techniques in citizen science and open science, as some of us are calling it now. And that was my awakening to the potential for crowdsourcing and being able to go outside of the lab and into the world to create impact on a larger scale. Yeah, very cool. And um, and yeah, you got to that terminology, citizen citizen science, because as you were going through that, I was like, oh, that so that was the the foray into it, which makes perfect sense. Because once you once you can get out of the lab, and once you can get to potentially millions of other people or tens of thousands of other people who have a sincere interest in, in wanting to help, and you know, self selection being a huge mechanism there, because they probably find the topic just fun, endearing. It's something they're passionate about. Uh, and they, and they could self-select it to lend their hand, whether that might be, you know, annotating, uh, looks to the sky to try to locate asteroids or, or to do some sort of, you know, search missions online or, or do molecular biology through crowd, um, with some great, great case studies that have been, been throughout the years with using just the droves of, of, you know, human eyes and human intellect to, to, you know, kind of finely tune and select things out from from imagery, which is super cool. Uh, which, by the way, 
we can go down a whole different rabbit hole of how that could feed AI and feed machine learning and create this awesome feedback loop where you have, uh, you know, crowd plus, uh, you know, machine plus, plus human to get this amazing, uh, you know, teaching uh, that, could, that could fuel AI. So many cool things that we could go down. But before we, before we hit those, those kind of rabbit holes, I, you know, I know the GSA very well. I've been with TopCoder for 12 years. We've been, we've been partnering and working with, uh, with the GSA and running challenges for the, the federal government for years. So I know it. However, I think a lot of people probably have a scene missing in terms of what the heck is the GSA? What function does it, what function does it serve? And, um, you know, I think giving people that as, as a foundational thing to, to, to anchor on would be super, super important. So, if you had to frame it for someone who just never knew about it, what is the GSA and who does it, who does it serve? Yeah, great question. I think, um, you know, to talk about who it serves, let's, let's first talk a little bit about its history. So, so General Services Administration was established in 1949 by President Harry S. Truman. Um, it was really established to streamline the administrative work of the federal government hmm. and the the mission of the GSA today has stayed true and form to that original mission, but it has evolved um, into to realms where we're providing stewardship for really the way the government uses and provides real estate acquisition services and technology. Challenge.gov is part of the GSA Technology Transformation Services Division, and we refer to that as TTS. And TTS works with agencies really to improve the public experience with government. And, and importantly, we strive to help the public use and understand government. And we help agencies understand and serve the public. And so we serve as that, that middle point where we help any federal agency in their endeavor to do things like apply artificial intelligence, um, uh, cybersecurity methodologies, innovations and acquisition. And, and that's where challenge.gov and citizenscience.gov fall in very well. Because so we were, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, let's, let's, let's talk about those specifically a bit too, because that's kind of where, you know, the GSA is the, the more macro subset and then challenge.gov and citizenscience.gov are within it. And what are the, you know, if it was like, if you had to explain like, how is it used? You know, like, okay, it's challenge.gov. How is it used? Like, what, what is, the, what is it, what is somebody, what if somebody has a cool challenge? They're like, oh, I have, I have a thing I think I would like to solve potentially through uh, challenge.gov. Like, what's the, you know, what's the, the mechanics there? And what, uh, what, how, how do people actually tap you and say, yeah, we'd love to, love to get this on challenge.gov? Yeah, for sure. So, so what's exciting to report is that challenge.gov is we're in our 10 year anniversary of establishment of the program. Awesome, congrats. Yeah, thank you. Challenge.gov in the past decade, we, we've helped agencies across federal government, over a hundred different federal agencies across government launch. I think the tally as of today is 1184 prize competitions on the challenge.gov platform. Um, this program was established by a law called the America Competes Reauthorization Act. What's great about that law that was passed 10 years ago is it gave every federal agency the authority, the legal authority to run a prize competition. And when that law was stood up, 
they knew that there would need to be a central hub that would help those federal agencies understand the policy and also facilitate the use of, of prize competitions to achieve innovation and solve mission-related problems. And so they came to GSA and GSA uh, decided to stand up a platform. And so the platform is called challenge.gov, but the program is also called challenge.gov. And so the challenge.gov website is basically a site where any federally sponsored prize competition can be hosted. And so if you go to challenge.gov right now, you'll see approximately 30 to 35 open prize competitions listed at any given time. Over 100 prize competitions are listed on this site every year. And they range from a diversity of topics from um, business, business plans, business case related to a specific mission uh, of an agency, to technology demonstration competitions, AI competitions, um, uh, technology uh, solutions, demonstration, uh, even IT development and software competitions that have been run in partnership with TopCoder for many years um, across some agencies. And so we're the central hub for posting prize competitions. Also what the program does is we facilitate the use of open innovation and prize competitions across government. So if you're that brave federal employee sitting in any office across federal government, you can email us at team at challenge.gov and we will provide any answer to a question you may have about prize competitions. We also will, will help you as you walk through your process of designing a competition with any need that you may have. That's awesome. And for, you know, I think, I think when, at least my bias is that the story in my head maybe is that when I, when I think people talk or think about U.S. government, they don't, they're not necessarily gravitating towards innovation or nimble and open and mm -hmm. the ability to, you know, the ability to kind of, to kind of really think creatively, think differently, and then reach outside and get, get this, the amazing inspiration and talent that exists well outside, you know, agency four walls or enterprise four walls and have that kind of gravitational pull to bring people around something unique and a cool challenge and then get, you know, extract genius and extract great solutions from it. Um, and again, that's just my, my outsider bias, uh, you know, be, being admitted there. And, and yet, of course, I know all about this stuff because I've been working and reporting and writing blogs and videos about, about these kind of partnerships for, for years now. Within the, within the government, within the agencies, how does GSA, you know, continuously find the next challenges? And like you said, the brave people who are like, oh, yeah, I think this is a, this is challengeable, if you will, something we could crowdsource, we could use open innovation. Is there a process, are there people at the GSA and like challenge.gov that specifically focus on like, you know, internal problem recruitment and how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, what's amazing about federal government is that any given federal agency, um, unlike most companies, has to deliver products for a distributed and diverse customer base. And what we know about federal agencies is that some of the, the greatest minds and exist in government, in government agencies who are true subject matter experts across a diversity of topics. Um, yes, over the years, what we've been seeing from the challenge.gov perspective is that more and more agencies are focusing on building their internal culture of innovation so that these 
great minds within these organizations are given the, the runway to go forward and develop those ideas and take the risk. And then also through that development of innovation as a culture, we're introducing them to open innovation and working outside of their organization to tap into expertise that, that is more distributed and to also importantly allow folks from outside of government, the customers that we serve, to be able to bring their ideas into government where there can be a broader impact. And so we're definitely seeing over the past 10 years an increasing appetite for the use of open innovation across federal agencies. And I think that you know over the past 10 years, we've seen year upon year an increase in the size of the community of open innovation practitioners across federal government and also an increase in, in the level of sophistication of the types of prize competitions that they're running running with the crowd and also the, the types of problems mm. that they're able to formulate and put out to the crowd. And so I think that open innovation in government is a, is a continually growing field that we're just gonna see more and more exciting things happen down the road. Something that stick, stuck out to me right there when you were talking was this this concept of uh, you know or philosophy of like innovation as a culture, and so what I think would help crystallize that aspect of it of like you know you're saying hey we're kind of seeing these agencies it's almost like get better it's like because the culture is there so they're they're a more aware they have more interest in, and then the risk the risk taking is uh, you know just probably more people individuals and groups are probably more empowered than ever because they're learning from, uh, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, learning from people who have done it before. So when you talk about innovation as a culture, do you have any like specific agency examples or ways in which you've kind of seen it, you know, materialize before your eyes? Sure. Um, at Veterans Affairs, they, they identified that before you can even think about going external to your agency to source innovation, you first need to invest internally in building that culture and in supporting your great innovators across your organization. And so Veterans Affairs stood up a couple of really interesting programs. One's called the Innovators Network. And the Innovators Network is a program uh, currently housed in the Veterans Health Administration, where across 30 plus medical centers, they have an innovation specialist at that, that hospital who really helps to create that culture of innovation at, at that home base. But this network of innovation specialists work together as a cohort to share knowledge, to identify areas of opportunity for collaboration, and also to organize events across that ecosystem. And then another thing that they did was they established an internal funding mechanism, innovation funding mechanism, a tiered approach, where if you're a federal employee at at VA, you, you can submit your idea and it has a potential for being funded, developed and scaled to go across the, the broader agency. We also, another example is, is right here at GSA in our a program called 10X. And 10X is an innovation sourcing program that's open to anyone in federal government who has a great idea. And in that program, it takes, they take the ideas through a variety of stages, depending on the maturity level, and you can receive funding to develop and scale that idea within government. And so there are several examples of where 
federal government is using internal innovation, ideation, development processes to take innovation from a, a smaller, lower TRL to a higher TRL in a short amount of time. Uh, there are lots of examples. Census, the Opportunity Project, it goes on and on. And then, and then they're learning. What we're seeing is agencies are learning inside a government. They're developing innovative models for development. And then that makes them much better practitioners when they go outside of government to work with, with the crowd themselves directly or to work with the crowd via um, private, private vendors like, like yourself. No, very. That's very. I love. I love that stuff because that's that's when you really get to the the heart of how do you not just do this once, right? There's doing something once is pretty easy, you know. Even even hard things to do it once is not not that hard, but to do something at scale and with purpose and with real thought and architecture is where you could change a, a workforce strategy, where you could really start to to. Uh, you know, uh, always think, I think it was uh, uh, Kareem Lakani, Professor Lakani from Harvard. I, I, I'll attribute it to him and I think it was him um, that I heard him talking talking years ago when he was saying like, you know, people sometimes look at crowdsourcing and open innovation as like the last resort. Like, well, nothing, nothing else works. Throw it to the crowd, see if you can get something. And he was always preaching. He's like, you know, really, he's like, invert that. He's like completely invert that, set up systems where you think about crowd first and how problems can get to the crowd and then use them as advanced R&D, use them as problem solvers and then bring, bring in those outputs and then for, you know, either further refine them or, or bring them to market. And I always thought that was a, you know, an inspiring way to think about it because it's, it's not some last second Hail Mary that you're gonna do one time. It is literally thinking differently about the way you, the way you will introduce and structure work. Uh, and how does, how does that work with, um, with, the, with the open innovators being available to you, which is super cool. Um, before we talk about results and maybe, some, maybe a couple of particular projects that, that you wanna you know, put some shine on, uh, I would love to understand how much of, you know, on the topic of culture, how much of the, that topic and how much do you see and encourage kind of the celebration of the risk takers and what kind of role does that have? You know, I think if you look across federal government at any major shift in policy or even at an agency like, like VA, shifting from one electronic health record system that was in place for decades to working with a software as a service provider to modernize that over time. Um, and NASA does this time and time again with technologies. Um, I think that, that you know, we're seeing in federal government that individuals who have taken on these major, that have been change makers, haven't necessarily considered themselves as innovators. And so what, what we always try to do is identify the folks who have done done amazingly impactful work that's been transformative in government and really celebrate that and learn from them. And that goes back to that culture of innovation, of identifying and celebrating when someone within an organization does something that was really hard and didn't give up and kept pushing and found collaborators. You know, there's a, a government awards ceremony every year called the Sammies. And I I can't remember. I think that's with Partnership for Public Service. And if you look at the folks who are recognized through that process, those are true champions, risk takers, and innovators. And I think that we need to find more ways 
to identify even that personality type when we're recruiting people to join government agencies and recruit based on that as an attribute somehow, and then develop and support them in a safe space for innovation throughout their career. So Jared, we spent a lot of time so far, which is, I love talking about, you know, innovation and the, really the culture of innovation, cultivating that. And thank you for bringing up so many just awesome and wonderful examples of how you're seeing it and how you're seeing the, not even incremental, but, but large improvements within the agencies and, and how it's really having a, a lasting impact as now you're, you're in your 10th year and you're going to soon eclipse 1,200 challenges that have been launched on, on challenge.gov. Um, which is which is a remarkable number, which is super cool, and congrats on that. So you know, I think the 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 twenty five thousand dollar question, if you will, if we're, if we're hearkening back to our childhood, is you know, what about results? You know, it, it's culture's great, and it's awesome to be collaborative and have co creation. End of the day, people are going to want to be understanding. Did it work? What kind of what kind of results did you see? So I know it's a little bit broad, but I'll give it to you, and you can take it and, and narrow that down. But what types of results uh, do you see, and you know what projects would you want to uh, talk about? Yes, with over twelve, well, approaching twelve hundred different prize competitions, there are many examples of competitions that have really driven transformation transformations in their field. You know, you think about the DARPA autonomous vehicle challenges and self-driving cars. And you think about all of the challenges that NASA has launched over the years to really drive forward innovation in space travel. And then, you know, even thinking of kind of the breadth of prize competitions, you know, at challenge.gov, that's, that's the really exciting part of when you come to the platform is that we're not focused on one specific type of competition or one type of challenge or topic when you come to challenge.gov, you really get to see the diversity of opportunities to innovate with the government across all of government. And some of the really exciting challenges I've seen lately, you know, I would mention the Department of Trans- Transportation Inclusive Design Challenge, where they're aiming to think about how can the future of travel be more inclusive for those who may have accessibility um, issues or disabilities. Also, um, Department of Education, they have a, a, a rethink the future of educate, adult education challenge right now. Um, HHS is looking to modernize health IT platforms really to foster better connections with directly with care providers. And the list kind of goes on and on. You know, I think about a recent challenge that's very timely topic wise would be the census get out the vote 2020 get out the vote challenge that prize competition really engage the public to come forward with videos where they could express the the need to get out and vote in your communities. I believe for that prize competition, they received over 700 submissions from in, in over a dozen different languages. And so what we're seeing through those examples I just put out is that agencies are engaging with the crowd uh, via challenge.gov and other platforms with really exciting topics and where the results directly impact those who are participating. And the, the breadth is what I think is the, the big thing that I think folks can, can walk away from too, is that, you know, again, hearkening back to the, it's not getting your favorite burrito delivered at two or 3 AM and there's, there's nothing wrong with that work. And that's a great system. And it's awesome that that the labor is there, the demand is there and there's good food that you can dial up. However, 
in these types of things, we're, it sounds like we're talking about everything from like, you know, like a word doc being delivered or some sort of a document that's like, hey, this is this is the ideation on that over to videos. And then and then it crosses the 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 chasm also into into technical delivery, right? Things that are algorithms or, or uh, applications and like, you know, you know, hardcore technologies and discovery that are also delivered. Um, do, you, do you want to add anything about like just kind of the wide variety of deliverables that come through challenge.gov? Well, sure. The different competitions that are, that are on there even right now, what they're asking the crowd to do isn't, isn't just a concept paper. You know, they're asking the crowd to shrink payloads for, <laughs> for NASA. They're, they're asking the crowd to develop videos, design, design formulations and sketches, all the way through prototyping in small batches, prototyping in large batches. Some of the competitions even allowed the public participant to have access to government testing facilities where they can really test and have an independent evaluation of the performance of their technology that's being developed as part of the competition. And so the federal agencies through these competitions are allowing participants to participate in a wide variety of different ways that really go to kind of the value proposition that, that solvers are seeking right now. You know, at the end of the day, if you're a solver and you want to find some of the most interesting topics to apply your skills towards, federal government is the place to go to look at the diversity of our prize competitions and the award structures that federal government's putting forward really go beyond just the monetary amount. Some of our prize competitions are rather large, you know, monetary amounts that you can win. But even beyond that, um, as I said, some of these competitions allow you to have experiences through engagement with federal government that can be transformational for individuals and small businesses. I love that because, you know, at TopCoder, we'll, we'll often see, you know, uh, a huge mechanism at TopCoder is the self-selection, like wanting to join something that piques you as an individual and that, you know, you're sincerely interested in or you want to get closer to and maybe have access to something or work with a particular brand. You know, we run challenges for NASA. And of course, when, well, not of course, people may not realize that, but when they go out on the platform, you know, people are like, holy crap, I get to work with, I get to work with NASA. You know, it's like, there's a, a, a real gravitational pull there, no pun intended. And it's, um, and it's sincere, but I think going across, it's not just NASA because NASA's, you know, the, the, the one that everybody loves, of course, and everybody loves rocket ships and going, going to the moon and going to Mars and everything else that they do, which is a lot more than that. Um, but it's really broader than that too, because you have these solvers and they could, they, like you said, I think such a, such an opportunity uh, that I think people that are not within open innovation or within the crowd sphere, they might not recognize that the talent really can see these types of challenges as an opportunity for them to A, do something radically cool, but B, also potentially change their life as, as the talented person that could come to something, deliver something of, of super high quality and super caliber, but also gain so much exposure and gain so much, um, you know, uh, chances to rub elbows and meet people within orgs and, and industries that just perhaps they wouldn't have had access to. So what do you hear from the talents when you put out these interesting challenges? Why, why, do, why do they come to them? What we hear 
first and foremost, when we talk to participants of prize competitions, is that they were very happy to serve the government, to serve their fellow man, to serve themselves and their communities through participation in this activity. Whenever you talk to prize leads across federal government, um, what they'll say is that the majority of the solvers that participated in their activity had never before engaged with federal government as an innovator or a problem solver. And I think the framers of the America Competes Reauthorization Act knew that. They knew that prize competitions would be a vehicle that would allow every, everyone to engage with the federal government in, in problem solving because through prize competitions, the barrier to participation is low. Yeah. Uh, the requirements are much lower than, than what you would have to have in place for to be competitive for a grant or a contracting um, mechanism or vehicle. With a prize competition, it really does allow the best idea, the best solution to rise to the top without the bias of who you are or the entity you are or the likelihood of success your entity may have before you ever participate. And so with prize competitions, we've really reduced the bias to participation. And what we found over and over again throughout the years is that that's successful. And it brings in the solver community that now has a stake in the, in the success of the competition. And because of the awareness that prize competitions have through crowdsourcing and being out in the world on other platforms, um, tweeted about, you know, through social media, talked about openly, we really are able to even raise awareness about the issue that the prize competition is, is set forth to solve in the first place. And so we have ancillary effects of a prize competition that go even beyond the solution that was generated. Yeah, that's, I, I, you know, there's, you said a lot of smart things today, Jara. I, I gotta be, gotta be honest, uh, a lot of great nuggets. That last bit is what, is what, you know, rung true for me so, so much so, because again, the parallels to what we see in the top coder world and the top coder universe, that is, you, you hammer those uh, home for us there, that that's the, the people, the people who are attracted to it, they, they truly want to be involved and, and, and eroding and getting rid of the bias that allows the dance floor to be open to say, who cares about your pedigree? Who cares about your, you know, in some cases, your geolocation? Um, who cares, you know, who, who cares about the, the traditional things that, that prevent somebody from being basically invited to the dance? They're out the window and now, and now it's about, is your, is your idea and your, your, you know, your performance, your outcome, can that stand and, and, and be amazing? And if so, you know, the, the world in that way, the world's your oyster and you will, you will have, you'll meet that opportunity with your talent, which is something that crowd and open innovation uh, just does so much more, in my opinion, so much more effectively than traditional mechanisms because of those innate biases that, that keep so many people as like a gatekeeper out of ever participating. And it's such, such a huge, huge change that um, I think is, is benefiting, you know, millions of people over, which is super cool. Exactly. You said it very well too. And I think that what we're seeing that is very exciting in federal government is that the traditional sourcing mechanism programs are, a lot of them, you know, I don't want to say that they're not innovative because a lot of them are, we learn from in their, in their techniques and approaches, but we're also seeing a carryover effect of some of the open innovation methodologies around 
um, communications and outreach, targeting the right solver communities, and really nice formulation of the problem definition, doing deep discovery upfront, engaging stakeholders. We're seeing grant programs and contracting shops utilizing this methodology as well. And, and that's very exciting. And so I think that collectively, the inside a government crowd, we're learning how to connect with solvers more broadly to reduce biases, to deliver better results through our sourcing mechanisms. Yeah. And like you said earlier, it's just, it, it's incrementally and continuously better. You know, you start doing something and, and you, and the a, kind of action begets action and, and the momentum just starts to roll and you, you, you've, it's not about finding a groove. It's just about uh, eyeing opportunities to improve something and then realizing when you do, it's like, oh, we tweaked this a little bit over here and boy, oh boy, we spiked our, our participation 12%. Well, what, what was the Delta? Like, what, what did we change? Right? So you're kind of running a bunch of micro experiments as you're, as you're continuously running a program and, and tweaking as you go and really optimizing, how do you get to the optimal amount of people so that you can drive the participation, drive the outcomes, and really, again, provide so much opportunity across the board, which is, which is awesome. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'll give, I'll give one more. I'd love to uh, allow people to kind of get some advice from those who are doing it already. There are innovators out there. You know, there are people that want to drive innovation, you know, directors, VP, whatever they are, whether it's enterprise or you're sitting inside government, but they want to not do a one-off. They want to look at this programmatically. Um, I know it's a broad question, but if you had advice for folks that are looking to, to jump in and really start a, a program around open innovation, where should they first focus? I would say put effort and resources behind discovery, problem definition, working with stakeholders and end users to map the needs, invest in accessibility so that you create a truly open and fair participation environment. And before you look to innovate with the crowd outside of your organization, first invest in the innovation culture to support the crowd inside your organization. If you can bridge these two communities inside and outside of an organization, I think your pathway to innovation and scale is more linear. Awesome. Well, Jared, thank you so much for taking all this time with us for the Upriser podcast. It was a great conversation. We, we really look forward to getting this out to our, to our community, our growing listeners. And continue good luck. You, could, you got some cool milestones coming right up, that 1,200 we talked about earlier. And uh, just keep us posted on your growth and, and all, the, all the awesome challenges that are happening on challenge.gov and citizenscience.gov as well. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the Upriser podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, so it's pretty easy. And of course, I encourage you to follow us out on social at Upriser, U-P-R-I-S-O-R on Twitter. And also, I would encourage you to follow Topcoder at Topcoder, T-O-P-C-O-D-E-R. 